Welcome back, Helping and Bruff. Sportsnet 650 here. Jamie Dodd and Israel Fair filling in for the guys. Week two of four for me. Izzy's done after this week. I uh, will soldier on in the morning here uh, for a couple of weeks after that. Helping and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And uh, as a reminder, we'll do what we learned at 8.30. So never too early to get your submissions in. Hit us up. Hashtag WWL. Uh, what you learned in the last 72 hours in sports to the Dunbar Lumber Tax Line 650-650. Um, we're going to get Adnan Verk of MLB Network on the line here momentarily, still trying to contact him. Uh, it is the trade deadline in Major League Baseball tomorrow, and a little bit of activity already around the league. Some interesting names, some big names. Max Scherzer uh, has been dealt, and the Jays made a deal. Uh, after taking two or three from the Angels over the weekend, they trade for reliever Jordan Hicks from... The St. Louis Cardinals sending a couple of minor league arms the other way, including uh, Sam Roberts, who I believe is their seventh-ranked prospect in the system. Yeah, highly, highly rated. Yeah. I saw him at the Futures game. He yeah. was at the Futures uh, game. Cla- Adam Klofenstein, the other guy who's a uh, longtime uh, Vancouver, Vancouver Canadian. Canadians vet. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it was a good interview when he was here, so shout out to Adam <laughs> Klofenstein. Good quote. Um, this is uh, an interesting deal because, okay, look, the bullpen this year has been really good. It's been one of the best in the league. And specifically, it's been pretty good, actually really good, at striking guys out. And Romano has always been able to, you know, he has great stuff. He doesn't have quite the elite velocity that the best relievers in the game do. But when his slider is working, he's able to get that swing and miss. Eric Swanson, again, not doesn't have the the velocity, but has the stuff and can get swing and miss the other way. Same thing with Trevor Richards with his changeup. But over the last couple of seasons, you go back before this season, the number one complaint about the Jays bullpen from Jays fans, and I would absolutely include myself in this, has been every other team, it seems like, has like three dudes that come out of the pen throwing 100 plus, and we have nobody. We don't have the legit flamethrower in the bullpen. Now they do. Now they absolutely do. Jordan Hicks, about as legit a power arm as there is in baseball. This guy throws a couple of pitches, his four-seamer and his sinker, regularly over 100 miles an hour. I believe he's touched 104, 105 in his career, Yep, which is absolutely unreal uh, when you think about it. So this is going out and adding, again, not something that was necessarily a glaring need, this year, but has been recently. And look, when you're talking, if you're trying to set yourself up for success in October, for success in postseason baseball, you need to have power relievers who can get, who can strike guys out, not just can get guys out, but who can strike guys out in big moments in the postseason. And look, it's a rental, maybe a steep price to pay for a rental bullpen arm, but you also know how pivotal having guys like that in your pen can be uh, in October. You mentioned the Jays and their bullpen strikeout rate. They are fourth in the league, and the teams ahead of them in just pure strikeout rate from yep. relievers. Baltimore, 
who has two guys who that are about unreal. unbelievable yeah. between Bautista and Cano. Um, they the Mariners are at uh, just mm-hmm. above them at twenty six point six percent. You know Munoz, who's Munoz, a, Matt Brash is also stuff. a guy who yeah. throws a hundred miles per hour with uh, a really really nasty hook. And then Houston is number one, and they mm-hmm. have like three or four guys that can come in and just go Blow lights out. Yeah, Jordan Hicks has been in a really nice stretch for the Cardinals here. Mm-hmm. He has had an uneven career. Because he's been, you know, it's kind of Nate Pearson-esque yep. in terms of, hey, we know this guy's got really good stuff. Should he be a starter? Should he be a reliever? Uh, he's battled injuries the last couple of years. But over the last couple of months for the Cardinals, he has had a really nice stretch here, has come in um, after their closer, Ryan Helsley, got hurt and assumed most of the closing role. Now, the Cardinals have been pretty bad this year, yep. so it's not like there have been a ton of opportunities. But the opportunities that he's had in front of him he has looked like that top-end reliever that you're describing, Jamie. A guy that can throw 100 miles per hour with no problem with a really strong breaking ball. That is the prototype now uh, for, for big league arms. And you're, look, you're right, man. Like, you just look around the league. I think about you, the teams that we watched when we were growing up. Oh. And if there was a guy that threw 100 miles per hour, it was. Well, there was one of like, didn't there even was like make two sense. in the league at any given time. And now bullpens have, mul- like the Mariners have Munoz and Brash. Yeah. Those are two guys that they can go, and they're not even their closers. Yeah. They have Paul Seawald as their closer because he has such an unusual delivery that even though he only throws 92-93, he. Players can't see the ball. Hitters can't see the ball <laughs> to the point that it's comparable to the 100-plus. But like, if the Mar- a Mariners game goes well, they got Brash in the 7th, Munoz in the 8th, two guys that throw 100. Now the Jays, and yeah, they have a lot of pretty useful pieces in Richards, in Mesa, mm-hmm. in Swanson. Hicks just adds another dimension, and that is exactly what you want in the playoffs. Well, and the great thing about acquiring a high-end bullpen arm like this is you get the innings out of him, but then it, the domino effect of – it's kind of like adding a a number two defenseman on an NHL team, right? Where not only are you getting the performance from the number two defenseman, but all of a sudden the guy you were asking to be the number two defenseman, well, now he's the number three, and that's a much better position for him, right? And the number three is the number four, and that's a much better position for him. And it's a similar thing here, right? Where when Romano's healthy, and this is part of the story, is he's on the 15-day DL right now, uh, or IL, I should say. Um, When he's healthy, he's still going to be the closer. But now all of a sudden you have, you know, you probably look at Hicks, and Swanson as your next two kind of high leverage guys up. Then you go down in like the four and five spot to Richards and Meza. And well, that's five guys that you feel really confident in. And then look, Jay Jackson's pitching really well right Mm -hmm. now. Like Nate Pearson can heat it up. So all of a sudden, you know, it was already a strength. You go, you get Hicks uh, and it becomes even more of a strength. And John Schneider has a ton of different options. He can turn to for the Jays late in games. Now joining us on the line here on Halford and Bruff Sportsnet 650 to talk about the Jays trade and everything else happening around major league baseball ahead of the tomorrow's deadline. Uh, He is our guy, Adnan Verk. Adnan, how's it going? Jamie, Izzy, how you guys doing today? We're doing very well, and uh, we'll look, we we got some flack for talking movies with you so much last week, so we'll <laughs> d- we'll dive right into the sports and the baseball. We were just talking about it. The Jays go out and add Jordan Hicks from the St. Louis Cardinals. What do you make of the addition for the Jays? Well, I like it. My buddy Dan Plesak, who's a colleague and a former Blue Jay, and of course is just back in Toronto for the Angels Blue Jays, when I said to him, head of the trade deadline, what do the Jays need? Because they need one more bullpen piece because you got to get a guy getting the ball to Swanson and then Romano. By the way, when I saw Jordan Romano at the All-Star in Seattle, I said, you've got to answer, is it Romano or Romano? 
He said, in Canada, it's Romano. In America, it's Romano. I said, well, I'm Canadian, but I work in America, so I'm going to call you Romano, like Ray Romano. Anyways, I'm going to get the ball to Romano and Swanson, and you need one more guy. So when I saw the Hicks move, I said, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Dan himself was a great reliever and a great closer, and you can never have too much in your bullpen. You know, I think every single team, fellas, that's trying to compete for a playoff spot will always take a little bit of extra bullpen help. And the, the return wasn't that high as far as giving up prospect. And this is a guy who hits triple digits you know, in the gun. There's no lie about that. And St. Louis, obviously, in full cell mode. Jordan Montgomery goes to the Rangers as well. So they had to get what they wanted to get. And I credit the Jays because I think what happens is the closer you get to the deadline, which is tomorrow at 6 o'clock Eastern, the price goes up a little bit more. So if you get a deal that you like in place, you get it done. And that helps out the Jays' bullpen. And, and again, it's not only helping Toronto – but it's negating one of the teams that they're challenged with because the core six was on the market and one of those other teams could have swept them. So it's a net gain all the way around. You mentioned the, the Jay series this weekend, Adna, and that was against the Angels. Last week we talked to you and you had the percentage chance of Shohei Otani being moved as pretty darn low now with the, the deadline one day away and the Angels coming out last week and saying uh, he's, he's staying put. He's not being traded. He will remain with the Angels at least for the next two months. Uh, there, that caused uh, you know a lot of reaction around the baseball world. Now that we've had a few days to sort of try to understand the Angels' perspective on this one, uh, what's your read on, on where the Angels are at? Because they've also made quite a few additions to their team and, and are trying to make a push with it, uh, not just uh, to keep Otani around for you know this season and try to get into the playoffs, but maybe uh, to show him that they are very much concerned with trying to, trying to build a winning team around him. Yeah, first, Izzy, I was critical of it. I didn't think it was the right move because of the fact I don't think Otani is going to stay necessarily, and you're going to get something for nothing. But now that I've seen the moves that they're making, I actually think it, it, it's worth a shot. You know what I mean? At the very least, you know, your, your team hasn't made the playoffs. You're an Angels fan since 2014. That's the longest playoff drought in baseball along with the Detroit Tigers. And now you have a situation where you're – Definitely in the mix. And you're on the outside looking in. It's going to be a hard battle, blah, blah, blah. But at least you have a chance to do it. So I think you're telling your fan base, hey, we believe in our team. We believe in you guys. And we want to reward you. And we want to reward Otani, who's having a supernova season for the ages. So I get it. You know, and I think that they've played better baseball recently that going into that series against Toronto, they could legitimately say, hey, we are in this thing and we could see a path towards success. And I really like the move as far as saying Lucas Giolito because that's another arm that can help supplement Otani. I was called him Shotani. He also is welcoming Otani and Patrick Sandoval, who's been very good for them as well. And, and Giolito's a guy who's had some mixed results. I looked at his numbers. He said, like, two or three starts where he got absolutely blitzed. Other than that, he's been pretty good. Like, I wrote a three ERA. So hopefully you get the Otani that you're hoping for and the Giolito that you're hoping for in that trade. And so, again, I think if it was just we're keeping Otani status quo. I wouldn't feel great about it. But the fact that they went out and got Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez, so two pitchers there, and went out and got C.J. Crone and got Randall Gritchick. And Gritchick, I'm surprised. I'm not a huge fan because I didn't really like him with the Jays that much, I'll be honest. But he's got an 860 OPS right now. Maybe better that's course field, but he's having a really good year with the Rockies. And he's definitely a guy generating some interest. And Crone's a player I think is a good bat. Again, a bit of a down year for him. So, I like it now. If you, if you asked me two days ago, I, I wasn't crazy about the move. But now I'm like, you know what? You're in the mix. God, the Yankees looked terrible last night. The Orioles jumped all over Luis Severino. So who knows what's going to happen with the Yankees. And if you're an Angels fan, you say we're four games out. Again, the playoff teams are Rays, 
Jays, Astros, then you got Red Sox, Yankees. And the Red Sox are two and a half back, the Yankees are three and a half back, LA is four back. So I, I could talk myself into it as an Angels fan, go, well, with the addition of Gilito, Lopez, Crone, and Richick, we're better than the Yankees and the Red Sox. Are you better than one of the Rays, Jays, or Houston? That remains to be seen. Well, and the other thing with the Angels is, you know, as you say, they're they're fighting primarily for those wild card spots. They are only five games back of the Rangers. Now, the Rangers have gone out and been very, very active ahead of the deadline, including one of the biggest pickups uh, around the league, Max Scherzer, going to Texas. Uh, what do you make of what the Rangers have done, and how how legit a World Series contender are they in your eyes? Oh, I think they're legit. They're, they're my team to pick right now, the American League. And you know, the only question mark was, how do you replace DeGrom? And they just answered it. We're going to do it with Max Scherzer. And it's really, I think, the, the only other concern I will say is Evaldi just went on the IL with uh, a forearm stiffness. So that's nothing serious, 10-day IL, and he's fine. But their rotation stacks up pretty well because you've got Scherzer, Evaldi as a pretty good one-two. Then you got John Gray, your Dane Dunnings, Martin Perez, and Heaney. So six names there are in the mix to be successful. Now let's get to Scherzer specifically. He hasn't had an ERA over four in like a decade. He's at 401 right now. If you like Sabermetrics, he's at a 103 ERA plus. So he's a little bit above league average. His strikeout percentage, a couple marks down. His walk rate, a couple marks up. But if you believe that Scherzer can get back to being a reasonable facsimile of what he once was, that he's an uber-competitive guy, uh, by going to nationally, the American League is energizing being a playoff race. And by the way, the Rangers have the best offense in baseball, so he's going to get run support. But I like the move. At the very least, Scherzer has shown this season he's a good pitcher. At times, he can be a great pitcher. He's no longer an ace. He's no longer a three-time signing award winner, Max Scherzer that we're accustomed to seeing. Mm-hmm. He's not the guy in one start. I know he's going to win no matter what. But he's still a good pitcher. So, again, you're replacing DeGrom, who was outstanding, but then he gets hurt. And by the way, the contracts coincide because Scherzer opted into the deal through next year. It'll coincide just as DeGrom is coming back from Tommy John. So I actually think it works out pretty well for the Rangers, and it's a pretty good risk. I mean, what other starter was available? Blake Snell is an awesome .71 ERA's last 13 starts. I don't think the Padres didn't trade him because the Padres just took care of business against those Rangers. So literally one or two games will change the entire outlook of the team. If the Padres got swept this week, and I fully expect Adrian Conrad said, okay, we're selling, who wants Snell and Hayter? But because they look so good, they're now two games under 500. They're talking themselves into maybe making a run here. They're not going to make moves. So the Rangers had to look around and go, who's the best starting pitcher available? Well, you know what? Scherzer's probably the guy. I don't know if Verlander's in the way. There's no trade clause. And that price will be cheap because Verlander's been great his last eight starts for the Mets. So you give up Acuna. He's Ronald Acuna's brother. Good prospect, double A. But you get Scherzer. Again, to reiterate, best offense in baseball. And you just added a former three-time signing award winner who may not be the same guy, but he's still a good pitcher. The quote from Mariners GM Jerry DePoto is that the, the team has, quote, a foot in both camps ahead of the deadline. In other words, they will add if, uh, if the trade makes sense, but they also are trying to, to keep an eye on, on the future, whether that's 2024 or even uh, further down the line. Uh, the Mariners are similar record-wise to the Angels. They're sort of in that, in that range of the wildcard race where they've got to jump a lot of teams to get back in it. Where do you think the Mariners should be? targeting when it comes to not just building this team out for this season, but trying to put themselves in a position where they can be a more competitive team consistently? Well, it's very hard when you're one foot in, one foot out, right? Because what ends up happening is you're, you're trying to appease too many people and you really aren't committed to success and, or you're not committed to tanking. One or the other, you got to have a blueprint. And I get what Jerry DePoto is saying because 
it is hard. Like, I, I do emphasize with them because when you're four and a half games out, you're really not sure where you are. Like, are, are we a playoff team? Like, we put together a 10-game winning streak and four other teams fold, then, yeah, we're in the playoffs. So we could take off, but probably not. But that doesn't mean I should have a fire sale either. It doesn't mean I should just give up because we made the playoffs a year ago. So I, I, I understand his point, but I think if you're one foot in, one foot out, it's, it's very, very hard to make moves. The Padres may have been in that situation because they may have dealt Snell and Hager, but still trying to get back not just prospects, but guys that can help, help them right now. So you can say, well, we made moves, but we're not out of it. We're trading stars. We're trying to get back stars. Sometimes that happens. But I think for Seattle, it, it's been a challenging season. It's been a mystifying season. They're a better team than what they've shown so far. I love their young pitching. Logan Gilbert specifically. George Kirby's awesome. Great strikeout to walk ratio. They could trade those guys to Baltimore. Baltimore has a plethora of great hitting prospects. But a lot of scuttlebutt. Seattle trades one of their young pitchers. Gilbert under club control, I think, two more years. And you go to Baltimore, the price is steep, but you'll get one of their big-time hitters back as well. That could happen potentially. Maybe DePoto's hinting at that because that's a move that could help them right now and in the future. But they strike out way too much, man. The, the Mariners are the second-most strikeouts in all of baseball. I love Julio Rodriguez, but he's been a little bit up and down this year. And some of the other players, Cal Raleigh's been a disappointment. So they, their offense really has been frustrating. But I, I don't really know if the answer is for Jerry DePoto. Because as I said, if you're one foot in, one foot out, you're kind of going nowhere. Adnan, appreciate the time. I know, uh, you know we'll see how much actually unfolds at, at trade down trade deadline day tomorrow. I know some big names have been taken off the market. Uh, but hopefully we get some fireworks anyways. Thanks for doing this. All right, fellas. It's a little empty Saturday movie talk, but I'm glad we didn't uh, earn the ire of anybody. I appreciate yeah, the chat. Yeah. We dodged it this time. Thanks, Adnan. <laughs> All right, Jimmy. Thanks, Izzy. Take care. Thanks, Adnan. That is Adnan Verk, uh, our regular here on Mondays from the MLB Network, getting us set up for a trade deadline tomorrow. And, yeah, I mean, Otani off the market, that's not a big surprise. Bellinger off the market is a bit more of a surprise. Uh, we'll see who ends up moving, especially in terms of bats. It, it seems to be a pretty shallow market now uh, ahead of trade deadline, but we'll see what happens. Uh, the deadline, as Adnan said, at 3 Pacific tomorrow. Um, I did want to get to this. Our, our next guest at 730 is Dave Campbell. He's the Edmonton Elks analyst uh, for 680 Ched in Edmonton. And look, this was going to be uh, one of our big talking points in what happened, and then we kind of got uh, a little overwhelmed by – Canada soccer and the uh, the women being eliminated at the World Cup. But uh, the BC Lions, they beat the Edmonton Elks over the weekend. In itself, not notable. They shut them out 27-0 in Edmonton. That's notable. The second time mm-hmm. this season that the Lions have shut out the Elks. That's re- It's hard to get shut out in the CFL. Like, really hard to get shut out in the CFL. Before the Elks, before this season, last time they didn't shut out, 1976. We're talking about almost 50 years. Now they've been shut out twice in one season at the hands of the same team. I did have to laugh. Uh, Lions quarterback Dane Evans had himself a good game, actually. Threw for 330 yards, a couple of scores. Uh, After the game, he had this quote about shutting out the Elks. He says, it's unreal. That is hard to do in the NFL, but here... All you have to do is kick it into the end zone, and you get a point. To do it twice is pretty special. Dane Evans just casually rubbing some salt on the Edmonton Elks wound. Yeah. Did you know you can just kick it in the end zone and you get a point? Come on, guys. It's not that hard. You guys couldn't even do that twice against us. And look, it's a great story for the Lions. They're 6-1, first place in the West Division. Anytime you rack up two shutouts against a division rival, that's incredible. The bigger story, though, and probably the biggest story in the CFL right now, is Edmonton. 
one of the kind of proud, historic, successful teams of the CFL. Now, 0-8, they have lost 21 straight games at home. A North American pro sports record. 21 straight games at home. And there's just a million stats you can get into about how absolutely dreadful they've been. Obviously, 21 straight at home, 0-8. That tells you everything you need to know. But it is kind of bizarre to see the Lions as the toast of the league, doing everything right, winning games. And Edmonton, you know, from a market that really, really cares about the CFL, just in absolute shambles like this eight games into the season. Yeah, I mean, right up until this run, they weren't as dominant and competitive maybe in the last you know in the 2010s yep as they were through the 90s and the 2000s and then obviously you go, go back, back to the 80s to yeah warren moon yeah. and um winning the gray cup a lot but you know you look at the you know, ricky ray and mm-hmm. they were very competitive for a long time and it's been a little bit of a slide as you saw some of the other teams you know calgary for example being very competitive for a number of years uh winnipeg over the last few years now bc's been a little bit more peaks and valleys historically and right now looks like that they are heading toward another one of their peaks here which is you know great news for for bc lions fans but this is uh yeah given the context that you laid out there Jamie pretty pretty shocking all across the board yeah and it's just it's like <laughs> I don't understand, you know, the process of roster building and general managing in the CFL kind of well enough to really dive in and diagnose what has gone wrong for Edmonton over the last several seasons. And obviously, you know, with COVID stoppages and stuff, I think you're going back to 2019, the last time they won a game in front of their home fans. Like, it's been an awful long time. And it's just, it is really striking to me, um, You know, because you think of kind of the core franchises in the CFL, the core teams as being the Prairie teams, right? Edmonton, Calgary, obviously Saskatchewan and Winnipeg is like the heart of the team. That that is where it means the most. Certainly there are big BC Lions fans, you know, Hamilton, Montreal, Toronto to a lesser extent. There are big fans in all those markets, but where it really, really matters is on the Prairies. And, you know, it would be one thing if the Argonauts were going through this kind of historic run of futility, right? Like, I can imagine a scenario where that unfolds because there's not as much attention. They kind of get there an afterthought, whatever. For the Edmonton Elks to be doing it, it's uh, it's bizarre. And it's bizarre to witness. And, you know, shout out to the BC Lions for adding to the misery uh, of their division rival with a big 27 nothing win uh, in Edmonton. And, you know, this is something that's getting noticed around the world of sports, right? Like, again, anytime you have a record mark for futility at home, like think about all of the horrible teams there have been in the NBA that have been like outright trying to tank, right? The Vancouver Grizzlies, for goodness sakes. They never <laughs> lost 21 in a row at home. And they have 40 games a a year at home in which to do it, right? Think of all the terrible baseball teams that play 80 games a year at home. There have been. They've never lost 21 at home. It it is really absolutely mind-boggling. And I wanted to highlight that story because, to me, one of the most interesting stories to come out over the weekend. And as mentioned, we'll get into it a little bit more uh, from the Edmonton point of view. We'll get his thoughts on the lines and what they've done too, because uh, he is uh, locked in on the whole league, I know. But uh, Dave Campbell will join us next to talk about it. What has gone wrong for the Edmonton Elks? Is this rock bottom? Uh, and what happens next for the Elks? That is coming up next here on Halford and Bruff Sportsnet 650. 
Welcome back to Halford and Bruff here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Israel Thayer filling in for the guys. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Get your What We Learn submissions in. We'll read them coming up at 8.30. Your chance to get your text read on the radio. But uh, joining us now, as mentioned, we were talking about the BC Lions shutting out the Edmonton Elks. And uh, the, the story goes a lot deeper than just one game and one loss for the Edmonton Elks. Now joining us to talk about that, he is Dave Campbell covering the Elks uh, and the uh, color commentator for the Elks on 680 Chad in Edmonton. Dave, thank you for doing this. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? We're doing very well. And, yeah, I mean, you know, we always uh, pay attention to what the Lions are doing and, and we bring people the updates of the result from the Lions game on the weekend. And we're doing that here, but... Really, the story from this game, you know, hey, it's great that the Lions are in first place. They're playing well. But the story is what's going on with the Edmonton Elks. And, you know, the second time being shut out at the hands of the BC Lions this year. There's a lot to get into here, but I'll start with this one. Is is this rock bottom for the Elks team? <laughs> That's a good question because I think fans would love it to be. And, you know, uh, it's funny because uh, on our broadcast on 630 Chat, uh, Blake Dermott, who uh, – used to play for the double E and won two great cups. Uh, you know, he always talks about eventually you hit bottom and then you bounce back up. Right. And then it's, you know, once you bounce up, things start to get better. Well, we're waiting for rock bottom. Right. And we don't know. And this feels like rock bottom, but there's been several other moments over the last, uh, you know, over the last year or the last two years that have felt like rock bottom. And then it just seems like they, they find a new low, but, uh, I mean, to go 47 years between shutouts and then to go six weeks between shutouts with the same team is, uh, I would say, is quite embarrassing. The Edmonton franchise is one that's obviously had some really long runs of success. Now, this is a bit unprecedented, but it's been a pretty long run here of of lacking success and, and being toward the bottom of the standings. What's been the difference how did the team get to this point where they're they're not where we're used we're accustomed to seeing the the Edmonton team uh playing uh, at the at a high level in the CFL yeah it's it's hard to it's hard to kind of pinpoint where this all started I mean you go back to the middle of the 2019 season this team was six and three and since then I believe the record is nine and 40 and they haven't been blessed with uh, good quarterback play. They haven't been blessed with good play uh, really all across the football team. They've had some, you know, turmoil within their organization with the coaching staff. You know, I mean, Jason Moss has kind of started with him, even though I think he's the least responsible of, of this, but he was let go and then uh, brought someone, brought in Scott Milanovich. Uh, we didn't play in 2020, of course. The league didn't play. He left for the NFL. Then he hires Jamie Elizondo. Uh, they go three and eleven in the in the twenty one uh, shortened season. And then Chris Jones comes in after Elizondo and Brock Sumner when they're fired, and all that money goes on the operations cap. And they're like, "Well, we we want one guy to do everything, to do coach, GM, and obviously Jones is the defensive coordinator to save some money here." And I think they've been you know floundering ever since uh, uh, with Jones 
kind of cleaning up a bit of a mess from the previous regime. But, uh, you know, I think I think the quarterback play hasn't helped. I don't think, you know, this is a quarterback-driven league. Uh, I think the way that Jones has spent some of the money, uh, especially this year, he's got four receivers tied up in, you know, $700,000, and that affects the rest of the roster. You know, it's a lot when Michael – it reminds me of when Michael Riley was signed in 2019, signs the – the rich deal for uh, seven and a quarter hundred uh, $725,000 and that affected Ed Hurry's ability to, to, uh, you know, improve the rest of the roster. So it, it, it goes really, really deep, but I would say, you know, the, the, the quarterback has been an issue and the fact that I don't think the money is allocated all that, all that well in certain positions. You know, one of the striking things about the situation the Elks are in right now is, yeah, I, I was talking in, the, in our last segment, and, you know, if this was happening to the Argonauts, let's say, who are kind of an afterthought in Toronto, who struggle to get a lot of interest, it would be one thing. But not only is this a historically successful team in the CFL, it's one of the teams where, you know, there is a, a, a big and sustained and consistent fan engagement with this team. They really, really care about uh, about the franchise. What has the reaction been like among fans in Edmonton to to what's unfolded this year and over the last several years yeah you know I think about uh the attendance issues and it didn't just start this year or last year or two years ago when the bottom really kind of fell out I mean you know you go back to 2012 and this team was averaging around 38 39,000 per game and uh, the then president Len Rhodes was very good at making the team money uh, record profit, but unfortunately, you know, wasn't very good at selling tickets, and they ended up losing about uh, nine thousand uh, season or nine thousand average attendance. I mean, by the time he left in twenty nineteen, it was about thirty two, thirty one thousand. And then the next president came in, Chris Preston, who really didn't get a chance to really do what he wanted to accomplish here because of COVID. But then uh, there was a lot of uh, you know a lot of noise around the team with you know. Uh, you know, with with the COVID outbreaks and then, of course, the vaccine mandates. And, uh, you know, I think everyone, every market kind of dealt with this. And really the, the fan base in that year, kind of like the, the floor felt, or they, you know, it was years of alienation, they felt. And they said, I've had enough. And then the organization said, we have not been good to our fan base. Um, we have to We have to change what we're doing. And uh, that's when Victor Kui came aboard after they signed uh, Chris Jones as the head coach GM and the defensive coordinator. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's been a long time coming, I think, for a fan base that has felt jaded for years, and now they just have had enough. And I'll, I'll give this fan base credit, though. I mean, I think there's a lot of the fan base that has stuck around. I mean, there was almost 25,000 on Saturday for the game against the Lions, which is very impressive. Um, but they're not getting a lot of return of their investment. They're, they're, they're doing a lot off the field that I think is starting to become uh, very, very well received, but it's hard. It's so hard to market a team without the product on the field being very good. So that's the pickle that they're in right now is they just got to get better on the field because off the field, they're starting to get some traction. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned a bunch of names there in a pretty short period of time with some, some degree of decision-making power. That's not usually a good time for stability, but if, if you're seeing some strides being made from an organizational level, 
uh, and if that's going to eventually trickle down uh, onto the field. What do you imagine the next steps are for this team? There are some big things that you've brought up in this conversation, things like quarterback play and just more consistent play uh, and, and re- reallocating expenses across the roster. But w- with what's left of this season, what's what's progress look like for a team that's you know, now at this point you know, setting records for, for futility when it comes to a home losing streak? Yeah, I mean, there's not much they can really do, although I can tell you that uh, Darius Jackson is going to get promoted to offensive coordinator, and that announcement's going to come at the top of the hour. So they are making a change within the organization as far as who's, who's a play caller. And Stephen McAdoo, is, uh, his offense has not been very well received by, um, you know, by a lot of critics. And I talked to a lot of you know, people who have played the game, have coached the game, and they point – not necessarily to Taylor Cornelius, although I do think there are issues there, but they look at Stephen McAdoo and they say, you know, this offense is just not suited for the skill set of his quarterback. It's, it's, it's for a bland offense. There's a lot of responsibility on the quarterback and I just don't see Taylor Cornelius being very comfortable. So Jerry Jackson right away is going to try and a be more creative and B simplify the offense. And uh, we'll see what happens there. It's a, it's, you know, it's really all they can do with the football operations cap, right? They already got about $500,000 on that cap with, uh, you know, Brock Sunderland and Jamie Elizondo on their final year. And uh, Jason Moss's contract was spread out over five years, uh, his final year. So it's it's something, you know, they could have, you know, Chris Jones could have stamped that and did nothing. But, you know, he's obviously trying to address the offense, which in my view is the number one issue of this team of why they are 0-8. So we'll see what happens with Jerry Jackson as the offensive coordinator. He's done it before, and uh, we'll see if he can kind of open things up a a little bit for this offense, which is badly needed. We're talking to Dave Campbell, uh, Elks color commentator for 630, Chad. I said 680 earlier, Dave. I apologize for that, for 630, Chad, in Edmonton. Uh, You know, you've talked about the quarterback play, and obviously, you know, uh, you don't have to be a football expert to know that good quarterback play, extremely important to the success of your football team and how much that has let down Edmonton. You know, I do know that that's been a bit of a talking point around the league as well. For a few years now, right, questions about the depth and the talent of quarterback play, taking kind of a league-wide perspective, how would you assess where the the level of quarterback performance is in the CFL right now? Definitely not good enough. It's it's a real problem in this league right now. I mean, you look at the best quarterbacks in the league, and Zach Caleros is up there. You know, Vernon Adams is up there when he's healthy. But after that, you're you're kind of struggling. You mean Trevor Harris had a good season before he got hurt, but then you have a lot of uh, mediocre play. And sometimes mediocre play is the best you can get sometimes in this league. But it's a real problem. And, you know, I, I appreciate what the Elks are trying to do with trying to develop quarterbacks with Taylor Cornelius. And you look at the president, you know, they got Trey Ford and Jared Daigie on the roster. And then you look at Ottawa going with Dustin Crum. And, you know, they have Nick Arbuckle, who's an experienced quarterback. But, it's, you know, they said, we've seen it and we're not impressed with it. So we're going to go with Dustin Crum. And, grow with him and I, I do appreciate that you know Mason Fine is you know trying to find his footing in Saskatchewan taking over for Trevor Harris and I mean that's why the Lions I mean they made a smart move getting Dane Evans and when people were talking about well the Elks should go get Dane Evans I'm like why in the world would the Lions trade Dane Evans to the Elks what, what benefit is that for them and we saw on Saturday that you know Dane Evans uh, 
you know, why, why he's in D.C. I mean, it's, it's a valuable commodity to have as an experienced backup quarterback. Look, I think the league has to address this. And obviously with the USL, USFL and the XFL, that makes it harder for the CFL to recruit talent. Sure. And you really have to start, you know, this league has to, has to really comb the, you know, the college football scene in, in both countries. But in the States, you know, they got to comb NCAA Division Two and Three and NAIA and indoor football leagues and things like that. And, you know, I think what hurts the league is that in the off season you don't have a mini camp anymore. You don't have a rookie camp. You don't have a throwing camp. You don't have a, you know, even a kicking camp would be great. They got to find a way to identify where the quarterbacks are and bring them to this league and realize you are in competition with two spring leagues and you, you can't wait for them to go away. They exist now and you have to compete with them and you have to really sell the CFL that this is the second best pro league in the world. And you may get an NFL shot, but if you don't, this is a good place to play and, and make a career. So the league has to get with it. And when Randy Ambrosi has talked about, uh, the commissioner has talked about we got to do something to address quarterbacks. Of course, there's a lot on his plate right now, and he's got to get a workable stat system, which has been ridiculous. And then he's working on expansion somewhere. And, but this has to be on his list, and it sounds like it is. It's the quarterback play has to be better because this is a quarterback-driven league. Speaking of quarterbacks, the big question in BC this offseason was whether or not the Lions could build off of the momentum that they had last season, but do so without Nathan Rourke, who had, uh, when he was healthy, just an an incredible season for this team. Uh, So far, so good this season. As you mentioned, when Vernon Adams is healthy, he can be a difference maker as well. Uh, Having just seen the Lions and and seen them shut out the Elks a couple times this year, uh, what do you make of of their start to this year? Well, I'm really impressed with their defense. I mean, they're on a record-setting pace here and you know, this is a defense that is in all three layers. I don't think there's a weakness, and that's that's hard to say. I mean, uh, because I remember covering the team, you know, the uh, the uh, Edmonton football team back in Chris Jones's first run in 2014 and 15 when they had a really good defense. You know, their secondary I didn't think was that good, um, but their front seven was so good that it just kind of made up for you know the deficiencies in the secondary. I think all three layers, you know, D line linebacker secondary are so good offensively. You know, I'm so happy for Jordan Maximic who, you know, started off with humble beginnings here in the Edmonton area and started with uh, the green and gold and then moved on to the red blacks and, a, you know, kind of a prodigy of uh, Jason Moss. And now is one of the best coordinators in the league. Uh, I think he's done a great job with, with whether it was Nathan Rourke or Vernon Adams. And clearly uh, Dane Evans takes very well to him and vice versa. They can run the football. they got a dynamic uh, uh, receiving core. Um, you know, if there's one concern, I guess, it's the offensive line. I think that's probably maybe the weakness of the Lions. But overall, that is a well-coached team. You know, I've known Rick Campbell for a long time. And he's just a, a calm presence and, you know, someone that uh, gets the best out of his football team and is a very successful coach in this league. So uh, I, I would rank the Lions as the best team in, in the league right now. You know, I think it's, you know, the, the, there's definitely the top three. It's To me, it would be the Lions, the Argos, and it would put the Bombers, who are a very strong three in my opinion. But the Lions, to me, are the best team in the league. Dave, we really appreciate the time. I know it's been a tough season to cover uh, the Elks, tough couple of years. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for chatting with us. Well, no problem. It's a bye week, so there's no loss coming. There you go. I think think we all need the break. (laughs) Look on the bright side. I appreciate it, Dave.
Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> that is Dave Campbell, the Elks color analyst for 630 Chad in Edmonton. I love that. Hey, good news. <laughs> they can't lose at home this week. They're on a bye. <laughs> That is, that is the gallows humor that, that you need after bad. 21 straight home losses. Whew. That's bad. That's really bad. And for like such a gate-driven league, and, too. And you, you know do, what I mean? And like you can't, you you can't blame to... fans for not showing no, up. 25,000 after losing 20 straight showed up. That's incredible fan support. Are you kidding me? You, you would kill for that kind of fan support. And you just can't give them anything. I thought it was a good point he made. It's interesting to hear him, you know, kind of talk about the off-field stuff that the team is doing, yeah, which is actually pretty good, but it doesn't add up to anything, really, unless you're actually winning, unless you're giving, like, you got to give something. You got to give them a shred of something to cheer for. And, you know, I look at the Lions, and Amar Doman gets so much credit, and he deserves all of it, right? But at a certain point, the off-field stuff and the, you know, the pregame concerts only and the advertising so campaigns, far. it only does so much. It might get people out once. But if it's getting them out to watch a shutout, right, or to watch a 20th consecutive home loss, well, they're probably not going to come back. What the Lions have done that's so impressive is they've combined the marketing push and the effort to engage fans with a viable product. Not just a viable, but a really good product. As Dave said, like maybe the best team in the league this year. It's so important to have both. And I think it's a, it's a kind of fascinating tale of two teams where both trying to be innovative, trying to figure out new ways to connect with their fans. One, it's a smash success because they're winning. The other one, it doesn't matter at all because they're setting these historic marks for futility. Yeah, it's pro sports at the end of the day. You can get new uniforms. You can have cool parties outside the stadium. To your point, Jamie, you might get someone to come once because yep. they're interested and they're and hey, saying, something I'm going to do. do this yeah, on I'll a Saturday go, afternoon. Have a couple beers, Other whatever. than doing what I would normally do. But to keep people coming back, you need to have some consistency in winning. And yep. last year was lightning in a bottle with Nathan Rourke, where he looks like an NFL-type quarterback playing in the CFL, putting major numbers up and people getting on board. And it would have been fascinating to see how that would have played out for the rest of the year had he not gotten hurt. For them to come back this year and build a defense that seems legit and reminds people of the defenses that they had in the mid-2000s, mm-hmm. you know, going back to them winning the Great Cup in 2006 and having some ball hawks, some guys with some swag back there, but also playing in the trenches and, and getting stuff done. Yeah, uh, That's... Um, that's the key to, to winning football. And they've still, you know, been able to put up some points, you know, with the exception of the, the game against Toronto where Vernon Adams struggled and he's now you know, been injured for the last game and a half. They, they're they able to put up enough points. Mm-hmm. They don't need Nathan Rourke throwing for 400, 500 yards because the defense is good enough. And that the, the foundation that that provides, just it makes the off-field stuff shine. And Edmonton's obviously in a just a really tough. He named six or seven different coach slash executive people going back to 2019. And that's with seasons being missed due to the pandemic. Yeah, that's really tough. And, you know, the other comparison I would make, um, you know, we're comparing the Lions and the Elks, what they're trying to do and, and, you know, how how important the on-field success is. I would compare the Lions and the Whitecaps. Now, I know the Whitecaps got a big win in the the League's Cup over the Galaxy yesterday. Uh, So shout out to them for a a dramatic comeback. And, you know, overall, it hasn't been – it's been a relatively good season for the Whitecaps. But I I think of it in terms of, you know, you can create 
the experience. And the Whitecaps, for a while there, I think they they got a lot of credit, rightfully so, for the game, the match day experience. And, you know, a lot of that is the supporter section and the Southsiders. Yes, but correct. it was a fun thing to do. You could go. You could have fun. It was a different experience. Very affordable. Watch a game. And I think that got a lot of people to to go, maybe buy season's tickets, or at least try it out here and there. But they've never been able to capitalize that on that initial interest and that initial kind of curiosity, like, oh, what's this about, and build a consistent winner. Yeah, and think about with the Whitecaps, you want to take the, the comparison further. They had built up this momentum, yep. and there, Nathan Rourke was Alfonso Davies. Yep. And they threw that completely aside. Now, and look, like... You had, they had to sell Alfonso Davies, right? Yes, but they weren't. They, they didn't capitalize yeah, but on you having to, a player who was yeah. eventually, just years later, going to be starting a Champions League final. Yeah, you and you had. Yeah, you're right. You had to do it. You had to be good, really good, while he was here, and then you had to make sure you made the transfer fee count, right? And that you used that money to build a, a sustainable winner because in Vancouver, and I think this goes for most markets, but especially in Vancouver, if you're not the Canucks. If you're not winning, it's over. It's death. For Except you. for the Canadians. Except for the Canadians. That's a whole different story. <laughs> That's a whole different story. That's but. if the, the beer keg goes down. <laughs> then they might be in trouble. But for the Lions and the Whitecaps, everything else they do, and you got it, you still have to do the other stuff. You still have to make it a good experience. You still have to engage with fans. You still have to market it correctly. But if you're not backing it up with winning, it's not going to count for much. And I think what's happened with the Whitecaps is, you know, we've all been to a game now. We've all had fun. We've all been to, you know, sat in the Southsiders section, and it's a lot of fun. Is it reason to stay engaged with the team day in, day out, week in, week out in a very, very long MLS season? And ultimately, it's not, right? Like, there has to be more to it. And with the Whitecaps, it's been such a track record of kind of one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, two steps back, right? Where every time it seems like they're building that momentum, something happens and it falls away. Something happens to kind of give you that reason not to pay attention, right? To just kind of say, well, it's the Whitecaps. And I like I'll admit it, I I I was a Whitecaps season ticket holder for a long time. And you know, part of this is the pandemic, right? Because that it, it gets broken and you're not going to games and you lose that connection. But it's just really hard to live and die with a team or follow intensely a team that you don't think is ultimately committed to winning. And that's kind of where the Whitecaps yeah, well, you are. Know, you know where the path is going. Yeah. I actually remember uh, watching a, the playoff game against Seattle. This would have been 2017 with yeah. Halford and Bruff. Amazing. We watched it together, and it was like, we know how this is going to end. Yeah. And the whole point. That's a real turning point of, in Whitecaps Of history. going and following a sports team is you hope that it ends in a championship, mm -hmm. of course. But at the very least, you're buying in and you're investing because you, you don't really know where it's going. Mm -hmm. And you're willing to be on that roller coaster and take the ups and downs because when you get that success it makes the you know it makes it all that much sweeter because you've lived through the failures but i remember sitting there watching the game with those guys and going we all knew what was going to happen they were going to go down to seattle they weren't going to win and it was going to be another early playoff exit. And this was at the time where Seattle was quite good. Portland yep. was quite good. The Whitecaps were sort of there, but weren't able well, to, to push through. And I just, I do remember sitting with those guys and we just went, 
We all knew this and was, was going to happen. And I believe that, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that was the year they were coming off the 5-0 playoff win at home in the first round, I believe over San Jose. Which that's was correct. like, I was at that game, and that's kind of That was fun. Peak. I was at that that's game, like, too. holy cow, this was amazing. Not just a playoff win, but an absolute blast. You score five goals. It feels amazing. And then it's just a complete letdown yep. in the in the uh, the two legs, but also against Seattle, the least surprising result, yeah, the least surprising, right? And I think that again, kind of a turning point for the team where you get that incredible playoff result, you have a chance to build on it, and instead, what happens? You're still the kind of the little sibling to uh, to not Toronto, Toronto maybe also as well, but to Seattle, yeah, Toronto. That's a, an era where Toronto was getting. Yeah. Sebastian Javinko and, and Michael Bradley and playing at a high level you and investing in the yeah, club. They couldn't take jump over that hump. And I think for a lot of people, it's kind of been, well, I'm in wait and see mode with the Whitecaps. And they haven't been able to convince people to get engaged again like they were at that time. Uh, it is Halford and Bruff here on Sportsnet 6, 650. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We have an open segment next. Uh, I do want to play some audio from Aaron Rodgers as we continue to follow the Sean Payton Aaron Rodgers, Robert Sala, Nathaniel Hackett drama. Uh, we'll get into that I next. don't know if you're allowed to talk about Nathaniel Hackett, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, oh, no one tell Aaron Rodgers about this. Uh, we will get into that next and then what we learned coming up at 8.30. It is Halford and Bruff, Sportsnet 650.